Welcome to Calvary Chapel of Columbia, where we're unpacking God's truths one verse at a time. And now here's Pastor Tim with today's message. These Jews and Gnostics who are teaching that there is this mystery that you have to really get insight on in order for you to understand, and really that mystery comes down to works-based salvation. That's what it comes down to. That's what it always boils down to. Anybody that has a secret about how to be saved, listen, if it's not in the Bible, it's always going to be some kind of works-based, orientated salvation. That is not the kind of salvation that Jesus Christ came to be, bring us. He came to, to, to complete the work that we could not work, that we couldn't do ourselves. And so Jesus himself is enough for us. And Paul is writing this letter to these believers who are confused. You know, they, they had a guy named Epaphras who has been teaching them, and Epaphras, uh, you know, needed to get some insight, and so he traveled all the way to Rome where Paul is in prison, and he said, Paul, I need some insight to help these believers in Colossae. Paul had never been there, but he loved these people, as you'll see in, in the text this morning. And uh, he starts to pen this letter about the sufficiency and the supremacy of Jesus Christ, that he is more than enough for us. And um, so we're already worked through the first 23 verses. And in really verses 15 through 23, Paul gives us tremendous clarity about the person and the work of Jesus Christ, that he is more than enough. And he, he tells us things like Jesus Christ is the exact imprint of the invisible God. That means that he's God, folks. Paul is trying to describe who Jesus is, and he says he is exactly cut from the same cloth as God is. He is the exact image of God. He is God in the flesh. Not only that, but he is creator of all things, Jesus Christ. He is before all things and by whom all things hold together. He is the head of the church. He's the firstborn from the dead. He is he is the preeminent one. That means that he is first in rank above all. Jesus should be first in rank above all in your life. He is preeminent. He is before all things. That's why we can trust the person and the work of Jesus because of who he is. God came down for you so that he could complete the work that you could not do on your own. How awesome is that? Thank you, Lord, that we don't have to work our way to God because there would be no hope for us. But we're going to see as a result of Christ in us, which is the mystery that Paul's going to de define for us this morning, that we have the hope of glory. Praise the Lord for that. Now, Paul gets to this place in verse 23 where he says, if. That's a conditional conjunctive. That means that this is a conditional, there, there's a condition that he's putting on whatever he's about to say. He says that we can have assurance of our salvation if, if we continue to walk in the faith. Paul starts to talk about what it means to be a Christian and how do we know we're a Christian. You know where you're a Christian if you continue to walk in the faith. Now, I don't know if you've heard about the, in the, recently in the news about the denouncement of the faith of the pastor and author named Joshua Harris or Josh Harris. He wrote a book called I Kiss Get Dating Goodbye. And Josh pastored a church for a number of years, and, and then, you know, he, 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 he announced not too long ago that he and his wife were separating, and then after that, not too long after that, he, he, he made this statement. He said, I have undergone a massive shift in regard to my faith in Jesus. The popular phrase for this is deconstruction, 
The biblical phrase is falling away. By all the measurements that I have for defining a Christian, I am not a Christian. Many people tell me that there's a different way to practice faith, and I want to remain open to this, but I am not there now. According to what Paul is saying in verse 23 of Colossians chapter 1, Joshua Harris, because he did not continue in the faith, he was never a believer at all. How do we know this? Because the Bible tells us this. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 19, he says, they went out from us, listen very carefully, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. What is John speaking about? He's speaking about people who were once walking with Jesus but are no longer walking with Jesus. He's making a, a, a doctrinal clarification in that scripture. Can you lose your salvation? No. Not according to 1 John chapter 2, verse 19. You either have your salvation or you don't. You didn't get it because of something you do. You can't lose it because of something you've done. Here's the reality is if you are a believer, you will continue to walk with Jesus Christ. If you are not, you will depart the faith. That's what this verse is telling us. Now, Paul is telling us the same thing in Colossians chapter 1, verse 23. How do we know that we're saved? How do I know? If you continue in the faith. This, uh, the reason I bring up this, this um, topic of Joshua Harris is because it, it shows us that, listen, you can, you can do a lot of different things that look very Christian. You can stand in a pulpit. You can preach God's word. You can share the faith with somebody. People can get saved through your words. But that does not mean you're a believer. What is the evidence of your salvation? It is a continual walk with Jesus Christ. You know, Jesus said himself in Matthew chapter 7, verse 22 and 23, on that day many will come to me. When we stand before the Lord, Jesus says, many will come to me and say, Lord, Lord, did we not profess your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And listen what Jesus will say to them. I never knew you. Depart from me you workers of lawlessness. It's not about what you do. It's about who you know. If Christ is in you, listen to me, your works will be transformed. You will do things because that's what Christ does in you. He works out, you know, in invisible ways for us to see. Many people are, are focused on the works of it. And the Bible tells us that one day, if you truly don't have a relationship with Jesus, he's going to say, I never knew you. It doesn't, matter, it doesn't matter how much you were used by God. And so Jesus said it like this in Matthew 24, 13, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Is that pretty clear? The evidence of your salvation is in the continuing of walking in the faith with Jesus. And so Paul makes that very clear. And then he says something at the very end. He, he makes a declaration about who he is. He was Saul, remember, very religious man. He was a very works-based guy. He, he was doing everything, like, it, for all practical purposes, like, in that culture, Paul was the elite of the elite, folks. If there was a way to work your way to salvation, he would have been the guy to figure it out. But he came to the realization that he was nothing more than a sinner before Christ, just like you and I. 
And he laid his life down before the Lord, and the Lord transformed his life. And then the story's not over. He makes this declaration about who he is now. I am now a minister of the gospel. That word minister literally means uh, that you are a slave or a servant. Did you know that you're a minister of Christ? Did you know that if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, that, that you're not just sit on a bench until he comes to get you? Like you're a slave to Christ, you're a servant to Christ, you're supposed to engage in the ministry that God has given you? What is the ministry? First and foremost, the, 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 the call for every believer is Matthew chapter eight, uh, 28, verses 18 through 19, which is the Great Commission. Go into all the world and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have said. Jesus said that. Said that to us. That is your call. You are in ministry if you are a believer. And so what does that look like in practically speaking? What does the life of a minister look like? Paul moves on in, in these next few verses, and he explains to us what it looks like to be a minister of the gospel. That is the title of my message this morning, The Life of a Minister. If you will stand, we're going to read our verses this morning, and we're going to look at what it means to be a, the, what the life of a minister looks like. Colossians chapter 1, verse 24, Paul says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. The mystery hidden for, for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of his mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you from plausible arguments, for though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and firmness of your faith in Christ. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. And Lord, what a powerful statement. What a powerful illustration of what the life of a minister looks like. Lord, we pray as we work our way through these verses that you would help us to reflect on the minister that we have become. If we're in Christ, Lord, that you would remind us this morning that we have a duty. We are your servants. We are your slaves. More than anything in this life, Lord, we have a call to make you known. Will you, maybe in some of our hearts this morning, will you remind us 
of our calling. For others, will you encourage us to continue to press on towards the prize, completing all the works that you created beforehand that we should walk in. Lord, would you have your way in us this morning? We thank you that you're here. We thank you that your spirit is our teacher and that he is going to show us how to become better ministers to bring more glory and honor to you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. There's five things that I want to share with you that are characteristic in the life of a minister through the life of Paul here. The first we find is the morale of the minister. The morale of the minister. We see very quickly that Paul says, now I rejoice. Now I rejoice. The morality of the minister of Jesus Christ is one of rejoicing. We're called to be, it, it, it's a state of happiness and well-being, not circumstantially, but unconditionally. It doesn't matter what we're going through. We're called to rejoice. Why? Because the minister of Christ understands the sovereignty of God. We understand that God is in control, that, that as, we, as we, he sends us out into the world, that we're not going on our own. We're not blazing our own trail, that God has already gone before us, that he has orchestrated conversations with people, circumstances that we will face. Why? For his honor and glory. It's all about him, folks. As we walk in this world, God is orchestrating things to shine the light on who he is to those around that may not know him. And so we're called to rejoice always. Why? Not only because he's using us for his glory, but also because we understand that this, everything in this life is temporary. The minister of Christ understands that this too shall pass. It doesn't matter what you face, there is an end to it. You know, and sometimes when we get, we, we lose sight of that and we can't see light at the end of the tunnel, we get discouraged. And we stop rejoicing in the fact that Jesus is everything that he says he is, even in the midst of my troubles and my trials. And so we need to be reminded this morning that if you're facing hardships, you know, it, it, that, that James reminds us in chapter 1 to rejoice. That God is doing a work in our lives. He is changing us to become more like Jesus. He's shining light into the lives of people around us to reveal the gospel. That's something to rejoice about, folks. That even, and we'll see in a second, even in our suffering, that God can get glory. That he can use everything. The Bible tells us that he, uh, Proverbs 16, I think 3 or 4, but he uses everything for his own ends, even the wicked for a day of disaster. Our God is in control, and you can rejoice in that no matter what you're going through. Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 10, he said, we can be sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. Again, why? Because we know God is in control. We know that he is at work, and we need to just keep our, what, what's the statement that we make, in, uh, uh, the Christian kind of cliche statement when we're going through hardship? Keep your eyes on Jesus, right? Just keep your eyes on Jesus. You know, don't get your eyes on the waves. Keep your eyes on Jesus. If you keep your eyes on Jesus, that means you, you're keeping the eternal perspective that this is temporary, that whatever you're going through will pass. John Calvin said it like this. He said, Christians rejoice even while they're truly sorrowful because they're rejoicing in the hope of heaven. While joy overcomes sorrow, it does not put an end to it. You know, so oftentimes we, we think as Christians, you know, come alongside each other and say, hey, man, what are you so sorrowful about? You know, you need to buck up and, uh, you know, trust the Lord. Listen, our hardships don't become any less hard because we have the hope of heaven. 
You know what I'm saying? Have some grace with your brothers and sisters. Yes, remind them that they have a hope in heaven, but, but be sorrowful with them, yet be rejoiceful. That's what the Bible tells us, that it's, it's kind of one of those, you know, dichotomies in the Christian faith that you're like, how does that work? Just trust the Spirit. You know, let the Spirit, don't allow your sorrows to control you to where you stop being who you're called to be. Paul says, I rejoice. That is the morale of the minister. Next, we find the manner of the minister. He goes on to say, now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. That in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body. That is the church. Paul goes on to speak about his present sufferings, the fact that he's in prison. He's saying, hey man, I'm suffering right now. I'm in prison. Why is he rejoicing? Why is he, 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 is he, is he joyful about this? Because Paul understands that his imprisonment, listen, is not a Roman imprisonment. He understands that he is in prison by Christ and for Christ. Because he understands that Christ is in control. You know, here's a guy who hasn't been in prison before and who has been released miraculously by the power of God, shaking that Philippian jail where the jail doors opened up. He understands God is in control. If God wants me to be set free in this situation, he will orchestrate that moment. And he does eventually. Paul understands at this point he could, he could die he could go to be with the Lord, or he could be set free. And he's saying, I'm just trusting God, and I'm rejoicing in my circumstances because I know he's in control. And I know that he's using this moment, what? To bring glory to Christ. That he's using this moment not only for their sake, but the, for the sake of everyone. He's using this moment in Paul's life for your sake even. It says for the sake of the church. It's amazing what God does through our circumstances Perhaps God is allowing your circumstance, your suffering, whatever it is that you're going through, to be a comfort to others. You ever thought about that? It's a scripture. It's 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 3 through 4. It says, Blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, for the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Sometimes the suffering that we are presented with is meant so that you can bring comfort to somebody else in the suffering that they face. You're called to be a testimony. The Lord is using every circumstance and situation in your life, and He's with you, and He's walking through the situation with you, and He's bringing comfort to you. If you will lean on Him, you'll find the comfort that He wants to give to you, and then you can be a distributor of that comfort to somebody else. When you say, hey, listen, I've been where you're at. I tell you, if you will press into God, He will provide you, which the Bible says, a peace that surpasses all understanding. If you will press into God. Paul is telling us that he understands that God is using this not only in his own life, but in the lives of these believers in Colossae and also in the lives of those who would come after them. For the whole church, he says. Paul understands also that there was a predetermined amount of suffering in those in the church. As he goes on to say, he goes, I am, in my flesh, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of of his body. And what he is not saying is that Christ's afflictions are not enough. Like they were inadequate, so he has to make up for some of the suffering so that, you know, and in fact, 
interesting enough, this is where Catholics get the concept of purgatory from this very verse. They say, oh, well, see, Christ's suffering wasn't enough. So, you know, if you, if you are not fully right with God, if you haven't fully suffered enough in this life, then you'll go to purgatory and you'll suffer there, then you'll go to heaven, right? That's not, that's not what he's saying. That's completely contrary to this letter that he's saying. It's totally out of context. Just be careful about taking a single verse and making a doctrine out of it because the entirety of what Paul just got saying is Jesus' suffering is enough. Totally makes, doesn't make sense at all. But, but Paul is saying here that, that he, uh, he, his afflictions are for the sake of the body and that his suffering is fulfilling that of Christ. What does he mean? That there's a predetermined, uh, predetermined amount of suffering that will happen on the earth. Where does that come from? It comes from Revelation chapter 6, verses 9 through 11. Here, here's what the word of the Lord says. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who have been slain for the word of God and for, for the witnesses, for the witness that had been born. They cried out, this is the saints, that the, the martyrs of the, they cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were given each. Uh, then they were each were given a right robe, and told to rest a little longer until the listen the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. Paul is saying that there is a present suffering that's going on today that is part of this eschatological uh, framework that God is working out in in the scheme of of. The end. And so he's just saying, hey, I just trust that. I trust the Lord that he knows what he's doing and he knows how much is enough. And so Paul says, listen, the, the manner of the minister is suffering. You will suffer if you are a believer in Christ. Uh, Jesus said, listen, you're not greater than your master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. And so don't be surprised when the world comes at you because if you're standing for Christ, the world hates Christ, therefore they hate you. But understand, they're persecuting him. Not only this, but we also see that the message of the minister in verse 25, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations but now revealed to his saints. Listen, to them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Paul was a minister of the gospel by the will of God. He says that in various different other letters that he writes. He says, it's not because I chose to be a minister of Christ. It's because he made me one. I was appointed. Now, again, the general call of the Christian is the Great Commission, but there are specific calls in your life. God, God created you for something. You are part of a body. That means you have a function. You know, we have... We have lots of different body parts. They're all working in conjunction with one another to make our body move forward, and that's the way the body of Christ works. You have a very specific purpose that God has created you for. He created you maybe to be 
a finger or, you know, to be a toe. Somebody's got to be the armpit. I don't know. I, I don't know how that works. But somebody, ha you know, there are many different types of the members of the body of Christ, but we are all one. And we're called to, uh, to find that ministry that God has called us to and to fulfill that ministry. Paul says, I understand that the ministry that I've been appointed to is a stewardship. Do you know what that means? That means that there's accountability to what God has given you. Now, again, the general stewardship that we've all been given is the gospel. We're called to go out and make disciples. We're called to teach people to observe that which Jesus um, has given us. It's Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 19. We're stewards of the gospel. Paul goes on to say, I'm a steward of the word of God. And in fact, Paul gets to the, to the very end of his life and he says, man, I have fought the good fight. I have ran my race well. I have, I have given you the full counsel of the word of God. He gave people what it is that he was stewardship over, the word of God. Here's the question for you today, Christian. Are you, give, are you being a good steward of that which God has given you? I'm not talking about your talents. I'm not talking about your finances. I'm not talking about your family and your, you know, parenting and all these things. I'm talking about the ministry, the specific ministry that God has given you. You have a ministry. You have a part in the body of Christ. You're called to do something. You're called to be the servant of Christ. And the question is, are you being a good steward of that which he has entrusted you with? The false teachers here in Colossae are, are, are talking about this mystery that can only be found if they, you know, if you come and listen to their teachings. And obviously, again, I, I said already that it leads to some kind of a, uh, some kind of a, uh, a works-based salvation. And so Paul uses the same terminology. And he says, let me tell you about the mystery that I know. He talks about this mystery it will blow your mind. It is Christ in you, the hope of glory. He's saying that, you know, for believers, there is a mystery that is profound. That the fact that Christ himself is in you, and that becomes your hope of glory. Now, to us, we say, oh, yeah, we get that. That's the gospel. Jesus came to die for me. He, he was crucified on a cross. He bled and died for me. He was laid in a grave, and on the third day, he rose from the dead. That's the gospel. We understand that. But you have to understand culturally, what Paul is talking about is something that is so far out of the picture that these people don't get it. He's talking about the fact that the Gentiles will become the same body with the Jews, that there is, going, there is a merger, that Jesus Christ, uh, the Messiah, who they were looking for, by the way, didn't just come for Jews, but he came for Gentiles alike. And the fact that Jesus, his sacrifice was for the sin of the world, not just for Jews. He's saying, dude, this is a mystery that many, many Jews don't understand, but I'm, I'm bringing it to you. And many Gentiles don't understand because from their standpoint, if you were a Gentile, you were, you were totally shunned by the Jewish faith. You were nothing more than dogs. You were firewood for hell is what the Jews believed. And so the Gentiles understood that religious barrier that existed. And the only way that you could worship the God of Israel was if you became a proselyte, if you would renounce your Gentilism and you would convert to Judaism, and then at the, when you converted you to Judaism, part of that process would be baptism, actually. 
And you would be baptized, and you're saying, hey, I'm, I'm no longer that person. I'm a new person. I now am following the God of Israel. And that, that is the Old Testament uh, teaching for the Jew, that they were called to go out and share the light with the world. But they did not. They hid the light, and they made it very difficult for people to come to the faith. And so the Lord says, I'm going to shine a different light through Jesus Christ, and I'm going to send Paul to be the missionary to the Gentiles, that he's going to carry this, this um, mystery to these people. So that's part of the mystery that Paul's talking about. Parts of the other mysteries that Paul speaks about when he's talking about the Word of God, he's talking about the New Covenant, he's talking about the New Testament, he's talking about the teachings in the New Testament. So he's obviously talking about the fact that God himself came down, that Jesus is God in the flesh. He just got done saying that. So that's a mystery that many of us don't understand. Uh, and then there is the, um, the fact that, you know, God has a, an eschatological framework. Paul talks about this in First and Second Thessalonians, and he's talking about the coming of Christ again. And he's talking about what that's going to be looking like. He talks about the rapture, First Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 17, where he's talking about there is you're, one day when Christ comes down, he's just going to snatch you out. You're going to be caught away up with him. It's the rapture of the church, you know, and there's different views on when that will happen. We're a pre-tribulation rapturist kind of church. We believe that it will happen before the tribulation, before Christ comes again. But then he talks about, you know, the second coming of Christ. And by the way, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, Paul says that we have not, we have not been appointed to wrath because of Jesus Christ. So there's another point. But here's the thing. Paul has all kinds of mysteries that he's revealing. But the greatest mystery of all is the indwellingness of Christ in you, your hope of glory. When you become a Christian, the Bible tells us that we're sealed with the Holy Spirit. Now, you don't have a little Jesus living inside of you. I know that that really bums you out. You thought that when you asked Jesus into your heart that you have a little Jesus in there and he's pulling the strings and making you do, you know, you're, you're the this. No, that's not the way it works. You're sealed with the Holy Spirit, who is Christ. The Spirit of Christ, the Bible calls the Holy Spirit. He's the Spirit of Christ. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 through 14. In him, Christ, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. And so Paul is reminding us of this mystery that Christ is in you and that now you have a hope of glory. How do we know that we're going to heaven the question becomes, have you been sealed with the Holy Spirit? The Bible says if anybody's in Christ, 2 Corinthians 5.17, he's a new creation. Your old has passed away, you've become new. There's a change. There's a change in your life. You know, have you been transformed? If God is living inside of you, I promise you, you're, you're living somewhat of a different life. It's not the exact same life you were living, right? I mean, if God comes inside you, that's kind of a big deal. There's power in that. There's the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of you, and he's saying, hey, he's your teacher, he's your convictor, he is your power, and he's reminding you of all the things that Jesus has said. And he's using you, and he's equipping you, and he's gifting you. Your life has been transformed. If you are sealed with the Holy Spirit, you will know it. You will know it. Paul goes on, and he says, listen, I am a steward of the Word of God, and and again, that, that is the mystery of Christ in us, the hope of glory. But it's the mystery of the fact that there is no other way to heaven 
except through Christ. That our hope has to be in Jesus and Jesus alone. This brings us to the fourth point where Paul talks about the motto of the ministry in verse 1 of chapter 2. You guys tracking with me? I know I'm going a little fast because I want to get through this so we can get to the baptisms and I want to make sure I finish this. It's all in context and I want to keep it that way. So verse 1 of chapter 2, for I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those in Laodicea and for all those who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love to reach all the riches of the fullness assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's ministry, which is Christ, in whom, all, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in the body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and firmness in your faith in Christ. Paul talks about the, the, the motto of the ministry. What is the motto of Christianity? What's the motto of Christianity? Somebody tell me. It's a four-letter word. It's real simple. What is it? Love. Love is the motto of the Christian life. Therefore, love is the motto of the minister of Christ. You know, Jesus said that they will know him by the love that we have for one another. So Jesus isn't saying, hey, they're going to know you by the miraculous things that you do. That's how they're going to know who I am, although that's what some people focus on. Some people say, dude, they're going to know me by your incredible theological stances. They're going to know me, but that's not what he said. He said, the one thing that the world will know me through is your love for one another. Your love for one another. What is that suggesting to us? That is suggesting to us that we have to have, because we are people, we have to have the Holy Spirit uh, you know, working in our lives in order for us to love in such a way that the world takes notice and says, oh, that's Jesus. That's Jesus over there. That body over there that is, is coming together, they, they love each other. That's what Jesus looks like. I have to say that I think that the church is totally missing the motto of the ministry. I think that we have, we have made church something that it is not supposed to be. We've made it an event. It's not an event, folks. This is an organism that is meant to, you know, we're, we're called to come together, be knit together, encourage one another, and then we're called to go out there and share what we know, share that love, let your light shine before the world that they might see Jesus. That's what the church is meant to do, folks. Yes, there is a format that we follow, and yes, there is, you know, just culturally some things that we do, which is not inherently wrong. But, if, but what is inherently wrong is the spirit in which we come. Like, are we coming as a spectators? I think we just got done reading that we're all ministers. Is that right? Or am I the only minister here because I'm standing here? No, we're all ministers, right? So there's all kinds of ministry happening, right? I mean, it, before service, after service, in service, you guys should be ministering to each other, loving on each other, sharing each other's burdens, rejoicing with those who are rejoicing, Grieving with those who are grieving, that's what the body of Christ is called to do. That's what Paul is saying, man. The motto of the Christian minister is love, like displaying this love. And I'll tell you what, I'm reminded as, as, as the old Tim Romero that there is not enough love in me to, to, to present 
that kind of love that Christ came to give in my own flesh. And in fact, it's very much the opposite. The love that I display in my heart, my life, is no result of the flesh. I promise you that. It's a result of the Holy Spirit working in my life. And that's why we need the continual working of the Holy Spirit in our lives, folks. How many of you guys get frustrated with your coworkers, with uh, your neighbors, with your family members, with, you know, and you're not so loving? You know, I think we could all raise our hands. I don't know. But, uh, you know, I'll tell you I do. My wife reminded me the other day. She's like, hey, hey, dummy, you're missing the point. You're supposed to love. Oh, yeah, I forgot about that. Man, dude, I, when I was going through this passage, I'm like, oh, Lord, forgive me. Forgive me for not loving the way that I'm called to love. Man, it grieves my heart. But, but we are called to, to be a display of Jesus, man. Display of Jesus. Jesus, you know, the Bible says he's God, and the Bible defines God as love. Right? The motto of Christianity is love. Paul says you guys should be Knit together. Knit together. That, that means you should be unified. He, like your heart should be yo, so unified that when you come in here, the Spirit of God is the same. There's one Spirit. And so our heart should be yo, so unified that the Spirit, as He's moving in our lives, is moving the same direction. Like we as a body come in and we go, man, there's just this Spirit of what, what God wants to do in our presence today. And there's just this thing that He wants to do. And, and, and because our hearts are knit together, we're unified in that. Do you know that the Spirit of God can unify us in such a way that it can break denominational barriers? Do you know that? It can overcome doctrinal differences. Like if we really let the Holy Spirit loose in our life, we're going to not so much care about uh, our position on the rapture. We, we care about the fact that the rapture is going to happen, and we have a position because we're students of the Bible. But we don't fight about it. We stay unified. We're knit together. I'm not talking about just this body. I'm talking about the body. We're a very small fraction. We might be the wrist of God. I don't know what we are. But we're, we're some part of the bigger body of Christ. And we should not allow anything to stop our hearts from being knit together from one another and from anyone else who calls themselves a Christian who demonstrates that, that, that Christ-like character in their life. Be careful. Paul says we ought to be knit together, reaching the riches of full understanding and knowledge of God's mystery. Paul goes on here to tell us that, you know, how do we get full assurance? You know, have you ever gone through this process of wondering, am I saved? I'm not sure if I am. I don't know. How do you know? Through the Word of God. The more you understand through the word, the more understanding you gain, the more sure you are about what it is that you're, you, you want assurance in, right? So here's the remedy for things that you're lacking assurance in. Study. Look into the word of God. What does it say about this particular situation? And what does salvation say? Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 9. For it's by grace through faith that you're saved, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Okay, so you, the more understanding you get, the more sure you are about what it is that you're, you need assurance in. It's through understanding. So if you're lacking some assurance in some, some, in some shape or form regarding the faith, study. You know, I remember when I first became a pastor, I thought, man, I'm not really that versed in eschatology. I don't know that much about. It scared me. 
Because I'm like, well, I'm supposed to teach people about this. I don't have really a good assurance about this. The Lord said, well, study it, dummy. That's what you just study. You get more assurance through, your, through information. And so, you know, Paul is saying that these guys would, get, would, would get, reach that full understanding and that would bring full assurance through the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. And notice he says, whom is hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Whatever you're lacking, you go to Christ for. He is the source of all things. And he goes on to tell us that, you know, we will face all kinds of arguments in our world regarding Christ. You know, there's going to be all kinds of doctrines that come along and they're going to say, no, no, it's Christ plus this or it's Christ plus that or, you know, kind of like where Josh Harris is today. He's saying, man, I think that there's some other ways to heaven. Well, he's not reading the Bible then because the Bible says there's one way and his name is Jesus. And so if we allow ourselves to get sidetracked and we start listening to the arguments of the world, we get confused and we don't use the Bible as our source of truth. And the next thing you know, we're, we're, we're following man. Listen, you either believe that the Word of God is inerrant, that it is God-breathed, or you don't. You can't pick and choose whether you do or you don't. I promise you, if you study the Word and you study the, the, the whole concept of how the Word became to be, how the, how the canon of Scripture was put together, you will have more assurance about the Bible. See, Christians, a lot of Christians have no idea where the Bible came from. They have no idea why Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, why 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, why Titus, why these books are put in the Bible, where they come from. Am I saying you have to be a theological student? No. But you should kind of know. You should kind of know where these things come from. This is kind of important. Like if your whole stance is based on the Bible and you get in a conversation with somebody who knows just a little bit, they can turn you around so fast because you don't have the information you need to defend your faith. The Bible says that we should be able to defend our faith. That means we have to be semi-versed in these things. We have to understand where the Word of God came from. I don't look at this as church. I look at this as school, folks. We're coming to school like we're trying to learn. We want to know more about Jesus. We want to know more about the Word of God. That's why we go verse by verse through the Bible. And again, the more you know about something, the more sure you are about it and the less afraid you are to share it. So Paul is going on here. He says, man, just, just that these guys would come to that place where they would fully understand. And he said, even though I'm not with you, I'm with you. Isn't that what Jesus said? Hey, man, I'm going away, but I'm going to be with you. Don't worry about it. He's with you no matter what you're going through. The motto of the, of the minister of God is love. We are called to be a loving people. This brings us to the application in verses 6 and 7 where Paul says, Therefore, uh, as you have received Christ the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. So here's how we wrap this all up. Paul says, therefore. It means everything that I just got done saying, I'm going to summarize right here. Here is what it's all about. Just as you've received Jesus Christ as your Lord, so walk in him. You walk in Jesus the exact same way you came to him. Sometimes as Christians, we get confused and we, we wonder like, you know, we, we start getting works-based. You know, we start going, oh, well, I'm reading my Bible. Oh, I'm doing these things. I'm serving. I'm doing all these different things. And the Lord says, wait a second. Is your salvation in that? It is not. It is not. Your salvation is in Christ. Don't make it about anything other than Christ. 
just as you received him, which was by grace through faith, so too are you to call to walk in him continually by grace through faith. So Paul tells us that we are rooted and built up in him and established in the faith just as we were taught about in Thanksgiving. High five. Yeah. That's awesome. So here's how we're going to wrap this up. Listen, Paul is telling us that, that, that everything that we have to do all comes back to the very basics of our faith, by grace through faith in Christ alone. That's how you're built up. That's how you're rooted. That's how you are abounding in thanksgiving by being reminded. Don't depart the elementary doctrine of the faith, folks. It's always been by grace through faith. It always will be by grace through faith. The life of the minister is a life that is uh, uh, the morale of the, uh, let me, the, man, I'm confusing myself here. I'm trying to rush through this and I'm like, ah. So the life of the ministry is not for the faint-hearted, man. It's for those who uh, are sold out to Jesus who are willing to endure to the end. And I'll tell you, there's no greater call in the world than to be a minister of Jesus Christ. Our morale is rejoicing. Our manner is suffering. Our message is the uh, mystery of Christ and the hope of glory. And our motto is love. So that is the manner in which we are called to live as ministers of Christ. Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for your grace. And we thank you for just continually revealing yourself to us. We thank you for not saving us and then leaving us to kind of fend for ourselves, but you gave us a manual to this thing called the Christian life. It's called the Bible. We thank you so much for it, God. We thank you for how it transforms our life. Lord, we pray this morning that if there is anyone here this morning that is, that is not have that full assurance of faith, Lord, then maybe somehow by your word this morning that you would have given them that place, that, that understanding. If they, maybe they didn't know you, they thought they did and they, and they really don't, Lord, and you've revealed that this morning that you give them an opportunity today to confess their sin, to turn away and to turn to you. Your word tells us that anybody who calls upon your name will be saved. But we have to call on your name in a very specific way. And that is in, in complete and wholeheartedness turning away from our old life and turning to you to be transformed and, and to be forgiven for our sin. And we know, Lord, that your word tells us if we pray a sincere prayer, confessing Jesus as Lord and believing in our heart that you raised him from the dead, that we will be saved. It's written in your word. And so this morning, God, we want to give anyone that opportunity to come to Christ, that they would just pray this simple prayer. Lord Jesus, I am a sinner in need of a Savior, and I recognize that this morning. And I am turning away from my old life, and I want to be transformed and changed. I want to be forgiven. Will you come inside of me? Will you give me that hope of glory this morning? Will you change me? I believe Jesus died for me. I believe that he rose again from the dead for me. And I'm putting my faith in him this morning. And Lord, we know that if we pray that prayer, something similar to that prayer, Lord, that your word tells us that we are in you. Now we have the hope of glory and, the, and all of heaven is rejoicing as a result. Father, for the rest of us that are walking as ministers of the gospel already, that you would fill us with your spirit that you would move in our midst, that you would draw us to yourself and help us to be the, 
the vessels of honor, and the light to the world that we are called to be. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. You can hear more of Pastor Tim's studies through the Word of God on our website, www.calvaryofcolumbia.org. Thanks again for listening, and we hope you'll join us again as we continue to study God's Word.